What's your favorite Christmas carol? Turn to the person next to you. You got 10 seconds. Say it. Don't sing it. Don't sing it. Just say it. Your favorite Christmas carol. All right. All right. Some of you said Sandy Safefoot. Some of you said Rudolph. Winter Wonderland. You guys don't go to church much. You say that. Probably the most famous Christmas song in the entire world is one that we hardly sing at all, at least at home. It's Mary's Magnificat. My soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit has rejoiced in God my Savior. For he has been mindful, he has remembered the humble state of his servant the Almighty has done great things for me. That's such a great song. What I want you to know is it's not only for Mary, that is our song as well. That can be your song. Now, maybe it's not right now, maybe it's not today, but you don't have to just give her that song. You can sing it too. My soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God, my Savior, for he is mindful of the humble state of his servant. And from now on, all people will call me blessed because the Almighty has done great things in my life. That is our opus in life. That's what we Live for that God may do great things in our lives and our descendants will call us blessed. So that's the first thing I want you to see about it. The second thing is I want you to notice the language in this song because all of the language is past or present tense. Partway through the song, <laughs> what Mary says is he has scattered the proud and the arrogant. He has brought the princes down from their thrones and he has lifted up the lowly. He has filled the hungry with good things and he has sent the rich away empty. This is present tense language. He's not saying someday. <laughs> The poor are going to be rich and the rich are going to be poor. Someday the powerful will be brought down and the humble will be made powerful. He's saying or she's saying this has already happened on this day. See, if you read this in the future tense, then you're like a church person who keeps waiting for heaven to get here because when heaven gets here, you're going to be rich and the rich are going to be poor and you're going to be powerful and the powerful are going to be low. But if you know that this song speaks of the present day, this very moment, you're not waiting for that. Or else you go out and you try to start another revolution. You try to mobilize the poor and the lowly in the streets. So they will take the rich and the powerful down. And then you will exalt the poor and the lowly in their place. 
You see, you're thinking about this wrong because if you do that, what do you think the rich and the powerful are going to want a few years from now when you strip them of their money and their power? They're going to want it back. So what you have is a perpetual revolution. This is Cuba. This is Syria. This is Iran. Well, this is the Democrats and the Republicans. We almost have this idea that the powerful are here and the princes are here and... The lowly are here on a lower rung of the ladder. We think that the rich are here and the poor are on a lower rung of the ladder. We don't understand what Mary is saying is this is a different ladder and it leans on a different wall. You don't need new people in power. You need new definitions of power. You don't need another rich class with you in it. You need a better definition of what it means to be rich. So what we've learned in this manger is that this manger is the inversion of the ladder. The foolish, the simple are the geniuses among us. The weakest are the most powerful. And today, the small are big. Someone going to help me out of this chair when I'm done. <laughs> I was born big. I was almost nine pounds when I was born. Had a head the size of a basketball with two puncture wounds where the eyes were. Time I was in the third grade, I went into it, and my first day they measured us, I was four foot ten. And when I graduated, I was five foot three. I mean, graduated from the third grade, I was five foot three. That's taller than my mother in the third grade. She said, That don't mean I can't beat you. By the time I was in the fifth grade, they made me king of all the plays. But because I stuttered, I couldn't talk. And, and so I was always the mute king. <laughs> it's like he don't ever talk. Well, he's just tall. That's all he is. So I am naturally, like all of you, attracted to what is big and what is large. Y'all don't have any problem with something being small as long as it's on its way to being large. 
So we have big SUVs. We have big yards and big portfolios and big houses. And did you know that the average size of the American home has increased 25% in the last 30 years at the same time in history when our families have gotten smaller? We are a supersized culture. I went into the store uh, about two weeks ago to buy a new television. Ours is making noise. It rattles. And I have in my mind this nice, modest 40-inch. You understand, when I was a kid, uh, it was like 20-inch was, was, if it was color, it was a big deal. And so I walked in, and there are the 40 inches. And I looked at them things, and I said, man, that is perfect. And then off to my left in my peripheral vision, oh, man, we're the 55-inchers. I stepped back, and I looked at that thing, and without even trying, I just started drifting down. I looked at that 55-inch, and I went, oh, holy cow, this is straight from heaven. And when I said it out of my left was a 65 inch. And I looked over at that thing and I went, oh my goodness. And I stood and I started to pay homage to this thing. And then all of a sudden there was a 75 inch right off to the left of that. And I stood here and I said, this is one born king of the Jews right here. And then partway through that conversation, this lady walks up with the Best Buy tag on and she goes, can I help you? I said, yeah, you help me get that thing from here into my car. She said, they have 100 inch televisions, you know. <laughs> I said, no way. She said, yeah, they have to come in and professionally install them in four quarters. I said, how much are they? She was $60,000. I said, no way. What I think about televisions is what Americans think about everything. They think if something is bigger, it's better. If there's more of it, then it's necessarily bigger. They think when something is bigger, it's more sophisticated, it's more developed, it's more mature, it's more relevant, it's got fewer constraints, it's more free in life. When in fact, anyone who has led a large organization knows that the opposite is actually true. When something is huge, it's actually less developed because there's more things to develop and there is far less focus. It is far less free, it is far more constraining, and it is probably less relevant because it is so popular. Now, we all can say that we believe in small things, but we believe in them only so far as they are on their way to becoming big. But you see, this is the genius of Mary's song. Mary is saying, no, this 
is the change in definitions. When something is small, it is actually more powerful. You doubt this, but you already know it. The most powerful form of life on the planet is not an 800-pound gorilla or dinosaur. It's a virus that can bring an 800-pound gorilla to its knees and send a dinosaur into extinction. And so we're clear on the record, viruses, when they reproduce, never get larger. There's always more, but it didn't big. We will have to come to grips with Jesus of Nazareth who came in on a manger and went out on a cross. Who spent most of his time with the poor and chose to stay that way. Who lived and died in relative obscurity. When he healed people, he forbade them to tell others. When they came to make him king, he refused. He rode into the city on a mule, not a stallion. We will have to come to grips with one who never traveled more than a hundred miles from his home was buried in a borrowed tomb. And even his magnificent resurrection, he carefully hid from everyone who didn't already believe in him. It was almost as if he made a conscientious attempt to oppose our obsession with big and more and extravagant and impressive and extraordinary. It's like he was opposed to it. It's like he came in in a manger and never got out. I'm not saying that everything big is evil and everything small is beautiful, but I am saying that something significant is sometimes lost when something small keeps trying to get big. And I am saying that nothing essential is lost when something is small with integrity. And I am saying that if we truly want to transform things, we will have to enter them and stay a while and put up with hard resistance, opposition, and reinvent ourselves. And by the way, the only time you can enter anything is when you're smaller than the thing you're trying to... Enter. So here's the payoff. What does this mean for you? Well, one, it means stay content in whatever place God has put you in today. 
don't try to outthink him. If God has put you in an ordinary run-of-the-mill place in your company or in the public opinion, don't try to climb out of it and get more notoriety and attention to yourself. Just thank God that you have an ordinary place because it's truly the ordinary things that change things. Consider when your audience grows, you actually become less influential because you have less focus. And you simply don't have that much radiance. Unless you are the Son of God, you can't affect that many people. Unless you focus. Something of simplicity is lost when you want to get rich. Second, it means hide your best work. Instead of posting everything that you do well on Facebook, why don't you hide it? What the saints in history have taught us is that whatever it is you do well, you probably do it without the thought of who's watching. The great saints are a little like Frodo and Sam in Lord of the Rings. Their beauty is in their anonymity. It's in their bumbling simplicity. And their faithfulness to a cause that is bigger than them, one that hardly anybody else believes in, that is their genius. Their genius is not that they are attracting a lot of attention. So do your best work in obscurity. There's something to be learned from the Catholics, isn't there? The canonization process. The more dead you are, the more likely it is they'll consider you a saint. There is nothing to be gained in notoriety in life. It's not even a gift. Most sanctity is decided post-mortem. So do your best work and hide it. And if God wants it to come out, somebody will find it after you're gone. But do your best work. Third, it means elevate somebody. Oh, this is un-American. Find somebody who is behind you and elevate them until they are ahead of you. Someone who takes orders from you and give them power until you take orders from them. The Americans will let you help people. They just won't let you help them beyond you. And I'm telling you, do it anyway. That is the power of the manger. Not only the king, he's a king maker. And four, downsize. If you have lots of people following you or watching you in life, if you have a lot of position and recognition in life, intentionally narrow your audience so you're giving more to less. 
instead of giving less to more. Yeah, Mary's song, everything is on its head. You know, if the king would come in this way, you would say, any king that believes this lives like this is not like this world. Mm-mm. He would have to be born in the middle of the night. He'd have to come to parents that had no nobility. The first witnesses would have to be someone like shepherds, not kings. It would have to be somebody born on the margins because the room was all occupied. And then it occurs to you, that's exactly how he came. This morning, I want us to leave smaller than we came in. I want to talk you, if I can, to staying in your manger. Be content with your manger. It is good enough. It's good enough. I was thinking uh, through the week of... um, the Lord's last days, how everything was what I thought it was upside down, how maybe his betrayal was actually his appointing, and how maybe his crucifixion is actually his lifting up. 